0: The episode you are about to hear was created prior to our rebranding to Foul Play. If you have any information on any of our cases, you can visit us at itsfoulplay.com. Ryan earlier you mentioned your disappointment in the Catholic Church in Baltimore's response to the keepers after it came out. Did you ever feel while you were creating it that any type of intimidation or them trying to persuade you not to create it in that light no not not
1: directly. I mean, I would say we all we definitely felt much more stonewalling than any um intimidation. You know, that's not to say we, we were we were on the ground in Baltimore for three years and, and you know, living, living in my uncle's attic and um, crisscrossing the city every day. And that's not to say we didn't meet a lot of people while we were making it that, that were worried or, or warned us or said, you know, this is the type of stuff people aren't going to want you rooting around in. So I don't want to make it seem like we felt, you know, completely at ease the entire time we were making it. But no, no explicit intimidation, for sure.
0: How were you able to narrow it down to a series with seven episodes? <laughs> uh, well, originally, when we
1: began The Keepers, um, there was no serial format. You know, we I think the the podcast serial came out a couple months after we were filming The Keepers because I remember the, you know, the kind of, That it was having in Baltimore and having those conversations with people like Gemma, you know, but was obviously the podcast format and was groundbreaking, but was no real documentary version of that, at least during those years. And then The Jinx came out, Making a Murderer came out while we were making The Keepers. And that totally changed the conversation. So day one of making The Keepers, Jess and I thought we were making a documentary feature film, which is what we do. We're filmmakers. But by the time in our final two years of making it, there was this new, very successful format that was bartering the attention of mainstream audiences, which is rare for documentaries. Documentaries traditionally have always had a really tough time, you know, getting mainstream attention. They're usually considered pretty niche. And so suddenly this new format existed and every distributor was looking for the next good true crime story. So we were in a very lucky position as far as timing goes to have been filming something for a couple of years because they all take a long time to make but to be wrapping it up around the time when the when the true crime series format was really booming. So our original conversation, you know, my my sensibility is always to make it never make it longer than it needs to be. And our original conversations with Netflix, I believe, were to make it a five or six part series. We turned in six episodes at some point to Netflix with the note like, I think we need another one. <laughs> and Netflix watched it, and they, they agreed with that and allowed us to do that seventh episode. And so that's how it, that's how it landed there by, by uh, you know sheer editing and seeing, you know, because we filmed hundreds, if not thousands of hours, so you don't really know how much needs to be the final product until you start editing it. And I think my whole team and I have a big team of collaborators on the keepers all kind of agreed that seven um, was kind of the sweet spot, and, and Netflix agreed with.
2: Can you just explain a little bit about how Netflix came in? So I don't think people understand that you didn't come here as a Netflix, you know, representative. So can you just give a little of that background?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't work for Netflix. I work for, you know, what what is a company of two people, <laughs> um, that's Jeff and myself. But when we when we knew that we had something special in the Keepers, and we took it out the network actually the first place we took out the keepers we were keeping it totally secret even from our friends in the industry who we've worked with in the past the distributors that we've worked with in the past we weren't talking about it and we kind of unveiled it so to speak at a at a thing called the sundance catalyst forum so the sundance film festival holds this forum once a year where they bring six documentaries that are in progress and you're able to kind of pitch your documentary, and really you're pitching it to potential investors or financial partners that will help you pay for the budget of the film, pay for the production and the post-production. But Netflix was at that forum. The the head of Netflix documentaries, her name's Lisa Nishimura, um, amazing executive, has you know created some of the best documentaries of the last five to ten years, and. Moment Jess and I came off that stage, I think it's only like a 15 minute pitch or 20 minute pitch. Lisa was the first person waiting for us as we were mm-hmm. coming down the stairs. And that began a, a long process of, you know, we didn't only talk to Netflix, we talked to all the major distributors about it. But that, that began the process of Netflix coming on board. So Netflix was on board for the final, I think it was about a year of The Keepers, which frankly is when films start getting really expensive. You know, Jess and I are able to make films. Virtually just the two of us, and then at some point we brought John on board, and we you know we were paying our cameraman as you know, as good producers do. but besides that, and besides having to fly to Baltimore and live for free in my uncle's attic, we were able to keep it very cheap. you know, as Gene knows, and Gemma knows, I often shoot myself as well, like I also hold a camera so I can shoot a lot of my films myself. But once you reach post-production, which was the point we were at where you need to hire editors, and really start ramping up that's when we went out to distributors and that's when netflix became you know our partner
2: so the other question i have for you is when did you know <laughs> not a it. you already have said you know there were different ones that were going on it was uh, you know so how did you know when to stop
1: um you don't know when to stop it's the honest answer to that I'll, I'll never know if i stopped at the right point i mean as as, as gemma and Jean are well aware we could still be documenting the keepers the story didn't Mm -hmm. end in fact i the story has so many directions to go and i'm i'm so pleased that it it hasn't ended for me you know um and i've told gene this metaphor before but in my very first film when i was you know 24 25 totally inexperienced the distributor hired an experienced producer to oversee it because i was just this kid claiming that i was going to deliver a film and having no idea what i was doing and I remember the producer, her name was Ellen, telling me nearing the end of filming, she said, "Ryan, at some point the music has to stop." And, and I said, "What do you mean by that?" And she was she explained to me that it was a, a musical chairs metaphor, and that you could play musical chairs forever. That's what documentary filmmaking is. Most of the stories don't have you know a punctuated ending. Even the ones that do have a punctuated ending, you could continue documenting forever and she said at some point the music has to stop and you have to find your chair um and that's what i did on my first film you know whatever that is 15 years ago and i've always had to had to debate when that with that music stopping moment on all my films um and for me on the keepers um that was eugene i mean that was it was such an intimate process of us working together and constantly Keeping the communication lines open about what we were trying to accomplish together, and at some point during the filming, you know, we were in that park that shows up in the keepers quite a bit, where I interviewed Gene, um, which was kind of our, our our safe place or our like, you know, quiet away from home filming spot where and I and I would do that alone. I would just go with my camera and film a conversation yeah. with Gene there. And Jean, we finished that filming and Jean was kind of like, that's all, I'm I'm done. I've said it all now. Uh, and that was very, that's, you know, Jean is nothing if not honest. And I'm like, you're done for the day or you think you're done? And she's like, "No, I think I'm done with the whole process. You know, she shut her notebook. Uh, and, and we began, I think we, that might have not been literally the last time we filmed, but that was that was the beginning of the end where we had those conversations and we'd mm-hmm. both, I knew I was getting there as a filmmaker, as a storyteller. And Jean was obviously getting there, um, as the subject of my documentary. And that's when we began the end, like, like, you know, um, tying up any loose ends, making sure we got all of our final interviews, but it was really, it was really dictated by, by Jean more so than me. I think that, that it was time to, for the music to stop and to put the keepers out into the world and see see what came out of that
3: i hope everybody will look at that very ending because it was perfect that uh, that last episode i have watched just the last episode so many times and uh, you ended it at the right spot for where we were mm-hmm. guys yeah it was perfect yeah
2: they would come um, and it would be like you know they would leave, and then I'd feel like okay, it's somewhere that we're not doing anymore. I'd have a week <laughs> to relax, and then it would be like oh my God, they're coming. And so I would have like five things. When in is like, well, I would you know we're thinking maybe everybody could get together over there at my brother's, and then I have uh, Maria would really like you know, and maybe you could get, and then you know <laughs> I'd have five things. <laughs> I find there is like ma. He's the director. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I said, I know, I know, I know, you know, but that's what he gave me. He opened the door for us as survivors. There you you go. have
3: power in your hands, Gene. You can yeah. get
2: whatever you want,
3: hon. Thank you. You can.
0: What did you think when you first heard about us creating this podcast series, kind of talking about the same type of stuff, and what do you think about it now? Like, has your perception of it changed? Were you worried in the beginning?
1: No, I mean, like the the the, the reason I'm doing this podcast is because it, it's for Gemma and Gene and any any venture that these people that I work with take, I wanna I wanna support, you know. And I think you know the the music stopped on the Keepers and the Keepers ended at some point and I left Baltimore. You know, maybe I've been back once or twice for the release of the series, but I'm not there like I used to be. And that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of movement still happening. Um, and so if I if, if the keepers accomplish anything besides, you know, some sort of healing for the survivors or some sort of truth coming out, I would I would hope that, that would be that it mobilized people to continue digging for the truth. Because so much wasn't accomplished by by the end of the keepers so much um, transparency is still being blocked so many secrets are still being held so many people still aren't telling the truth so all of those avenues whatever they are you know if it's you know individuals that were in the keepers continuing on their their healing journeys or that's other um, journalists kind of taking the baton and telling other parts of the stories, you know, all the press that came out after the Keepers, all uh, you know, reporters in Ireland doing their own digging into what Maskell's path was while he was living in Ireland, which he should have never been in, because Gene had already made people aware of, of what Maskell was, and the archdiocese allowed him to go there and continue his own uh, path of destruction on another continent. You know, to watch journalists in Ireland doing their own digging, all of that is why, why I do what I do. I love nonfiction. I love digging and digging and digging to try to get to the bottom of something. And, you know, my, my, my product, my artwork, or my documentaries in this case, The Keepers, is not the end-all, be-all of that. So I'm all for people taking on their own projects to also dig at getting the same truth that I was.
2: Yeah, I think that's great, Ryan. I think that um, what you always kind of reflect back to me is somebody who is not, um, you are not the owner of the story that you documented.
1: The worst is when storytellers start, I think, when they start getting proprietary. uh, Yeah. As if they own something, which Gemma and Jean know a million examples of how that came up during the making of The Keepers. And Jess and my philosophy always is, we do not own your story. You are welcome to collaborate with us, but you own your story at the end of the day.
2: There's one thing for you to say that, but what I've seen since it's been completed is that you truly do move on to, you really are a documentarian at heart. You know, you did what it was. When you sat down, when the music stopped, you got up to a new tune. And you started, but it was a whole different. But so uh, Gemma has always said, you know, wise beyond your years. It's like, you know, I think that you live what you say. And again, for this particular topic, what you do by doing that is you allow people who are very vulnerable and don't trust easily to trust you. And I think for what you do do, I think that you you do not hold on to this like you can't leave what has been stirred up. It's like, okay, I did what my part was, on to the next thing. I think that, you know, you, you are consistent with that. So I just um I think for myself I would say, um uh Shane, no nothing against you, but I'm like I said, I'm very cautious, I'm very careful. I do um I'm very suspicious. <laughs> and my first thought was and this is being honest, uh, that I had hoped that if you had slipped into a topic that was going to bring you more viewers and you partnered with somebody who is um, uh, on fire with continuing to to dig and to find out more, Gemma would be the ideal person to do that with. So I'm going to just be really honest, you ask. And I also, for the viewers, as I said, you create your safe space. I spoke with Shane for two hours, two weeks ago on the phone, in order to hear his voice, to get to know him a little bit, find out what kind of feel I have energetically with him. So, and he was open to doing that. So, my first thing was more cautious and careful and, hmm, you know, um, what are you going to do with all this information once it's come to you? And you answered those questions very openly, very honestly. I think Gemma was very much part of those those questions being answered and that was helpful. Meeting with you on the phone was very helpful. I personally feel that, you know, I think the keepers opened up a huge door and there are so many people now who are able to speak out in a way that it is about giving the gauntlet the, the baton over and saying run with it, because I don't necessarily have the courage to, to be in front of, I, I don't even have the courage to be with all those survivors at one time. I have a lot of stuff I'm still working on. So you're providing that space. And Gemma is very much uh, a partner in it, is what I'm hearing. As I, I'm not listening to all of them. It hurts my heart to hear people's story, their experiences of this, over a podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, It it hurts me. I have too much empathy. I'm too connected to it. And it doesn't have to be masculine. It can be others. It's just the way that I have to protect myself. If they sat with me and we talked, it's a different story. So um, so I don't listen to a lot of them. Actually, one, um, I had my therapist listen to, take notes. And I came in, and she told me. What, she told me what you know. Okay, so she talked about this. She talked about that. This really affirmed you. This was really very much like what you've said, and you know. And so, I do things to, um, And this is again, I think it's important. People know this. Protect yourself. Whatever you have to do to protect yourself from being triggered or um, feeling as if you've been all of a sudden blindsided or you've gone too far, or, you know, you're spilling, um, do whatever you have to do to protect yourself. And I do that. I practice that probably every day. So oh. I do like you. I do like you, Shane. <laughs> you <know laughs> and what? I think, I do think you two are doing a good job. <laughs> we have figured out
3: that Shane could be my grandson. Ah! So Ryan, I'll take you for a son, and Shane could be my grandson. But anyway... <laughs> Um, Before we close, because I know time is tight, I would like to say to both of you, um, The Keepers was different than any documentary we've ever seen. And I think part of that was because there was so much, uh, it had such a cinematic quality to it, the music that Blake Neely composed, my secret crush, and my other open crush, John Benham, the photographer it was like they were working together. It was like a dance. And it came together so beautifully at the end that it was just so much more than a docuseries. And I think when it was all over and it was released, I think all of us felt a lot. Like, I was like, well, they're not going to be back to have dinner with me or whatever. i have fresco with me anymore. Or, you know, I'm not going to get to see Gene or... It was, it was sad that it was finished, but it was also a relief because it was stressful, but I think what it offered, because of the way this was accepted throughout the world, the whole world agrees about this, is that each one of us is now like part of this offspring, and we're each able to do our thing, first of all, because people know us, and our 10 minutes of celebrity gets the foot in the door. And because each one of us has found what feels right to move this ahead. And I have to owe this to my Uber lady because I don't drive anymore. She said, Gemma, there are two important days in your life. One of them is the day you were born, and the other one is the day you realize why. So for me, I know this is why. And I thank both of you for your part in that. And I think that this has touched the world and there's going to be big changes that have been centuries coming and coming late but we're getting there so thank you both for doing this
2: i would like to ask you ryan that you know is there something that you do wish that you had done differently or are you really at peace with everything the way that it we see it and we're like wow is there something you would have Hindsight said that would have been better, or I didn't know that was going to, you know, just as a as a director. Uh,
1: I mean, I try, I try not to think that way, because you know, I, I mean, of course, there's always a million things you could have done differently, shooting and editing and and how you presented something. You know, one of the one of the things that I feel like. Is really interesting part of the keepers, and I feel like I wasn't I wasn't prepared for was necessarily how everyone would be perceived because it was so popular, not to go back to the fact that the archdiocese didn't participate, but you know, Maskell's dead, Magnus is dead, Rick Woy didn't participate, John Kane didn't participate, Maluli didn't participate, Laurie didn't participate. None of them were brave enough to participate. And then there were some other people who participated in the keepers, like, you know, that might have been in a moral gray area or an ethical gray area, like someone like Sharon May, the the state's attorney, or like somebody um, like Edgar, who was a suspect in the murder, but we don't know. And I think it really hammered home the responsibility of a filmmaker, uh, as a filmmaker, of making something that that i now know becomes this popular that those people for better or worse like they 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 might be guilty of certain things they might not they might be in some sort of ethical crosshairs like that, that that the world out there gets really angry um when they see those people and i that might be valid but i also want to just keep reminding people that watch the keepers that the anger should really be directed um at the at the at the true villains who are those people that perpetrated the crimes and continue to cover up the crimes and weren't willing to answer questions about their failings. And so while anger is directed at a lot of people in the Keepers that participated, I still have to give those people credit for participating. And I just like to remind people of that. Like It's easy to get angry at the people that you see in the Keepers because they're putting their face in the series, but there's a lot of people who still continue to hide in the shadows that happen. (laughs)
2: Mm Mhm. very good we love you don't we Gemma?
3: (laughs) we do we We love
2: we love ryan and we love shane and we love we just love 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 you
1: know Um, it's, it's funny i've never i've never gone back and watched it even when even when it it first aired uh like it i think it becomes available at midnight on on whatever night friday night into saturday morning and i never watched it like i i, I always said i you know i press play on the first episode watched the first few minutes and um uh, and then went to the seventh episode and fast forwarded all to the to the end and pressed play to make sure it was there and then just turned it off and trusted that everything that i had created was there mm-hmm. on netflix's service and it's really funny you know, even to talk to you guys right now, and you talk about, you know, documentary filmmakers, we're we're in there for years, and then we're out. Like, I don't don't see you guys that often anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's it's funny because I was just at Thanksgiving with my mom, and and we were at a cabin in California somewhere, and I plugged in our Apple TV, uh, an old Apple TV, and the keepers is what was, like, queued up on it when Mm I plugged it in. And my mom was, 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 you know, making something in the kitchen and I pressed play on the first episode. And I ended up sitting there and watching the entire first episode. And it rekindles such emotions, you know, like I forget, like, Gemma, your opening scene is at the Caton and Tavern and it's you ordering the yellowtail and you know, telling the guy you're not flirting with him, but then <laughs> asking if he has any baggage, you know, and uh, <laughs> you know, you're getting to meet Abby in the library and it really just arc back such Bond memories of of what it was like to spend right. time with you all. Mm-hmm. Uh and I was so shocked that I just sat there and watched it. So, you know, I've seen it so many times, that I just sat yeah. there and watched it.
3: I think we'll always have a, a special connection all of us that were involved with you. And um yeah, I that's my go-to line, Ryan. I'm not hitting on you, but do you have much baggage? I say it all the time.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> it works. I see
2: that works. I did have something I wanted to ask. Sure. Um, and you know, this has to do with Lori's letter, his recent letter to the Sun Paper. Mm-hmm. I too feel that um, they are running backwards.
0: The list Jean is referring to is the bishop's accountability list of accused priests.
2: You know, they found out that this attorney general's uh, investigation was going on, all of a sudden all these other priests show up on the list. Agnes, I had asked back in the and, and he couldn't be put on because uh, he was dead and couldn't answer for being accused. All of a sudden, he's on there now. I find that, I find that insulting. See, we are not stupid people just because we're survivors. We are extremely intelligent individuals who are even exceptional because we survived it. We have tools. We are in a sixth sense of things. So we are far from stupid. And that is what's so upsetting because we are only speaking truth. So for me... Lori writes this beautiful little letter, you know, and he's going to say all the wonderful things because they're having, I think it was around with the bishop um, gathering down in Mm -hmm. town. And there was a particular part that it actually took me to my therapist. I was so upset. So if there's a minute, I would like to um, just kind of say this. In his letter, uh, he basically was talking about Um, he was saying, you know, I'm going to quote him, gnawing questions just about how such repulsive things could have been done to children and vulnerable individuals for so long and on such a scale by the priests, pastors, and bishops in whom they placed their unconditional love and trust. How many rightly asked, could church leaders not have seen these deeds for what they were, criminal acts to be prosecuted to the fourth cent of the law? And he continues, the simple answer, I could spit at those words, the simple answer, it is like someone needs to, oh, uh, uh, the simple answer is that for far too long, there was an inadequate screening and formation process for those training to become a priest that failed to keep pace with progressive norms. Oh, my God, I am like, you know, beside myself. Um, The deeply flawed notion among church authorities that, quote-unquote, personal and moral failings could somehow be remedied with psychological and spiritual counseling led to the recycling of unfit individuals. Now, this is what I, what I found myself thinking after this. Everyone had wanted, it, and Ryan, you know, um, I know that you had made comment of this a number of times, and that what was it, 50,000 people signed a petition for records to be released. Uh, um, <laughs> even within the keepers, when Charles speaks of his mother, and then people, it's kind of like, you know, would there have been record? You know, would they have written that down? Do they still have the record? Well, this is what I found myself thinking. Um, Maskell was taken out of Holy Cross, October of 92. And he was taken out, and I was told by my lawyer of that time, Steve Tolley, because of my statement. So now he's taken out of Holy Cross, and he's put in um, the Institute of Living. So he goes there. I get a letter from Rick Voy. And it is now five months later, you know, because we've been corresponding. And he says, um, ultimately, what he's saying is there is no corroboration. And so they are going to have to stop any kind of support of uh, whatever the, the therapeutic bills they were paying for me. So now it's been five months. And he's been at the Institute of Living. And he then, then, because they have no, quote, unquote, corroboration is put back out into a parish. Now, we're not talking about back when we were in school 45 years ago. We're talking about 25 years ago. So 25 years ago, they had this man for five months at least, and he was supposed to be, I would consider that to be screening. That would have been when they were looking to see what is wrong with this man. Is there something that we need to pick up that he's giving us through whatever their testing is? then he's put in a parish. I would like to know where are the records of those five months that he was in that uh, place um, that gave them the peace of mind, the peace of mind to put him in another parish with more children after the horror that they heard from me. So I, I'm, my question is, and I pose it as maybe one of you two know. Um, I don't know, Ryan and I had talked about it. Who owns those records? Even if the place closes, who owns the records of why they chose? Who pays for those facilities? Is it the, the, the parishioners' money that they're putting in? You know, there should be ownership of those records to see what did their findings show and were they actually treating him? Or just waiting for someone like me to give them a name of someone so they could say, You're done. So instead, he goes actually into another parish. That right there is a huge question for me. Mm-hmm. Who owns the records? Who pays for those facilities? And then, if we as parishioners are paying for it, do we own the records? You know, because we're putting the money into the church in order to pay for those places, to pull those priests aside. The time. What did they find out? We should be able to get just those records.
3: I would imagine the archdiocese has those, and I know that there are eleven facilities in the just in the continental United States that the Roman Catholic Church pays for for um, a pedophile priests. Eleven.
1: I'll just I'll just point out to, to Jean's point. You know, the archdiocese who has. Obviously, I've asked for them to release their records a million times, and their excuse is always that they would have to redact victims' names from things. And the records that Gene are talking about are purely a mental evaluation of Father Maskell, um, Mm -hmm. who's long dead and even acknowledged by them to be a perpetrator. Um, Those records aren't about victims. Those are about a five-month-long evaluation at the Institute of Living by psychiatrists and psychologists who deemed him mentally fit and not a perpetrator, to return to Baltimore and go into a parish. Um, and who knows if the, if the records are owned by someone besides the archdiocese, but the archdiocese definitely has a copy of that mental evaluation because they paid for it. Um, and they're the ones that returned Father Maskell to a parish to be around children, and then to go off to Ireland and be around children. So uh, uh, another question, not that the archdiocese is ever going to release the records, but would they at least be willing to release the records of a mental ev- evaluation of Father Maskell that deemed him mentally fit? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, there should right. be nothing incriminating in there. They, mm-hmm. In fact, that mental evaluation should mm-hmm. show that this is a, a, a sane man who's not a criminal.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. After our discussion, Jean contacted Rich Wolf about these questions. Are parishioners. Donations paying for clergy abuse issues. He directed us to a current article in the Baltimore Sun which explains the donations. This article is listed in the show notes. The article didn't satisfy our question, however, so now we would like to see if you can help us. If the parishioners make up the church and tithing, fundraisers, donations left through wills, etc., are what keep parishes going. Does that money also pay for the premiums for the insurance companies to deal with clergy child abuse issues? For those priests deemed credibly accused, are they still receiving pensions and retirement funds? If you find an answer, please reach out to shane at shadowspod.com or go to our website at shadowspod.com and click contact.